Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And thanks to Chris Gaffney for Great Voices and it's just after four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, political corruption in Malaysia. I'll be speaking with Madara Morgan. We know who we are. Ruth Syriet does. The Intervention, a book review by Coral Winter. Censorship and repression in Indonesia regarding 1965. Dr Vanessa Hinman will be speaking about that. But first, let's hear it for, from Mr Kevin Healy and it's that time of the year. A week, Jane Liston, when for the second time in a row we've seen a long-held myth clearly emanating from long-haired commie greenie bring down the greatest little economic of them all, agit prop exposed as commie propaganda. Remember last week our big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull exposed the lies directed at poor, innocent, so-called tax havens, Cayman Island in this case. Thanks to Malcolm, we now know the super, super filthy rich invest through those places to maximise their taxes and, and now we've discovered after years of lies and poor old Adolf copping a bad press, a bad rap that the Nazis had nothing to do with the Holocaust the Holocaust had nothing to do with Nazism the swastika, the jackboots, Adolf and the fun team running Hail Hitler were 100% innocent it was the bloody Palestinians all the time. These evil terrorists with so effective a propaganda machine in alliance with their evil commie long-haired co-conspirators who have led the world to believe their propaganda for 70 years. And this week's debunking of the myth, iconoclasm cannot be denied. It was exposed by no lesser reliable source than the Zion big supremo, Benjamin Netanyahu himself. Well, that probably explains why the world compensated poor Zion by giving them the Palestinians' country. God, Yahweh, the prophet, condemning these mass murderers to eternal banishment, eternal statelessness, an eternity wandering in the wilderness. Despite the evil of the Palestinians, Zion has not just cast them into the wilderness and ignored them. It has sent in heavily armed train killers to protect them, sent in good, holy Zion citizens to take over the wilderness so the incompetent Palestinians don't waste its potential. And what thanks does it get for this overwhelming act of forgiveness and generosity? Terrorist children throwing stones, giving the compassionate train killers the dreadful choice of shooting them dead or locking them up for 20 years, which it does roughly in equal numbers, and forcing them to bulldoze the homes of these evil nomads for resisting their punishment, which, thanks to not another Yahoo, we now know was 100% justified. Got to say that with him we don't need another Yahoo. Uh, Benjamin, how many heavily armed Palestinian trained killers patrol the streets of Zion shooting, bulldozing and setting up checkpoints to prevent people going anywhere while protecting evil Palestinians who steal the homes of Zion people that used to be the homes of Palestinian people? 
Your question says it all. If we did not control the lives and movements of these evil terrorist perpetrators of the greatest act of evil ever committed, they would try to control the lives and movements of liberty, freedom, and democracy-loving Zion citizens. Like Benjamin, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the World Secretary for World State, John Caring for Train Killers, said their sole ambition was peace. We call on all parties to show restraint. All parties, the evil Palestinians and the evil Palestinians. And like Benjamin, we see the evil of the stateless Palestinians as the barrier to peace. Given there is no Palestine, despite what they say, we could achieve peace if only they would accept that they are stateless and nameless. How dare they call themselves Palestinians when there is no Palestine? Well, there we are. We'll leave Benjamin and John striving for peace and, and wonder what myth might be exposed and demolished next week. Although amid all this, film emerged of a Palestinian, well, stateless, nameless worker in his stateless, nameless non-state going to the doorway to see what the commotion was, which was peace-loving, heavily armed, Zion-trained killers bashing the proverbial out of stateless, nameless locals going about their business, which they have no business to go about. And when they saw him, they decided he had no business to put his head out the door. The video from inside the workplace, how were the poor, innocent, heavily armed train killers to know they were being filmed, showed the nosy worker paying the price of his nosiness, bashed the proverbial out of, kicked and punched and pushed and laid into and battered and assaulted by all these peace-loving train killers. Upon which... I would think the illegal release of the film, right up there with the worst anti-liberty, freedom and democracy crimes of Assange and Snowden, the Zion-trained killer establishment said the actions were inappropriate with what is expected of a Zion Defence Force soldier. For Yahweh's sake, this nameless, stateless, nosy interloper who had no right to watch our peace-loving train killers going about their business, which is, after all, train killing, was not train killed. He is still alive, just, but, and more inappropriate, our train killers failed to confiscate the film. So this inappropriate episode caught on film would be the only occasion when Zion train killers have acted inappropriately? Certainly, absolutely, you have the word of the Zion Defence Force establishment. Unless another film turns up. On tax, Crook Casino Supremo Jamie Puker boasted his company paid more tax, a higher percentage of, than any other top 50 company. Highly commendable, James, but that bracket bit, any other top 50 company, means it mightn't be saying a hell of a lot. After all, the rich know how to run a company, explaining why the government has sensibly announced evil union bosses won't be allowed anywhere near their members' superannuation. 
Ignorant workers have no right to decide what happens to their money, their superannuation money, all that lovely, lovely money. The Minister for Banking the Banks, Josh Fry, dem workers Berg exploded righteously. It shows just how evil these unions are that they run super funds making higher profits for lazy avaricious workers, charging lower fees than the banks and good, responsible financial institutions who understand investment, fees and profit. This is a deliberate plot to undermine the banks and responsible financial institutions to make their responsible business practices look bad. These evil union bosses pose a malicious threat to real competition and so we must generate real competition by legislating to remove this irresponsible commie competition, ensure the banks and responsible financial institutions get their hands on all that lovely, lovely money in the interest of the lazy avaricious workers, of course. Of course, who would think otherwise? The totally independent government regulator attacked the union industry funds for peddling fallacies. Authority member Helen Rowell showed her independence. Why, some bank funds were almost as good as union-run funds, she declared. Many non-union funds make comparable profits. Uh, that means the evil union management is still better, or even if, for the sake of argument, it's comparable. Uh, Helen, why change? We can't leave these vital national matters in the hands of amateurs. We're not comparing apples with apples. These evil union amateurs circumvent, illegally I would say, circumvent the responsibility to make profit for themselves. The money they make for their lazy avaricious workers is stolen, a strong word, but stolen from the pockets of the bank shareholders, the great international financial institution shareholders. Real business must make profit profit for itself. Workers' money is not the business of workers. Yes, let's not let evil workers stand between the banks and a pile of money, of lovely, lovely money. On which great international corporate X Long New, which last year made more profit than any company in history, by the way, and which Long New climate change caused by its product was real, but long, long denied what it knew. Well, finally, in the US of, there's been an arrest over this scandal. Yes, a protester blocking a pump at an ex-long new service station, gas station over there, as they call it, gas station, arrested for arresting poor ex-long news profits. What an evil person. Imagine how the responsible men in the ex-long news boardroom must have felt. And congratulations back here to the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, for saving True Blue Aussie from terrorist immorality. Sending that hussy Abiyan back to Nauru without an abortion because Pete knew she would try to exploit us by claiming the fetus as a true blue Aussie citizen. He showed her, gave her a Nauru true blue Aussie honiara Nauru round trip. Well, we don't want those types here. Imagine the damage she could do to true blue Aussie morality. Finally, 
Remember that protracted picket line at the Don't Buy Yard at Chicken Factory, later sprung for claiming free range, which wasn't quite free? Well, this week, Don't Buy Yard was ordered to pay half a million dollars, true figure, toward underpaid working holiday visa workers, paid a massively generous $11.50 an hour for up to 19 hours a day work, while also having $100 of that extracted for compulsorily living in quote, overcrowded, unsafe accommodation. Don't buy Yarda refused the not-so-fair work ombudsman access to its work sites. Wonder why? But more importantly, the culprit was contractors. Poor Don't Buy Yarda had no idea this was going on. We are an equal opportunity employer, it boasted. We treat workers and chickens as equals. Good afternoon. And that was Mr. Kevin Healy, and that was his week. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The Malaysian opposition has filed a motion of no confidence in the Prime Minister Najib Razak as a result of corruption allegations emanating from July regarding the transfer of nearly $700 million from the One Malaysian Development Bank State Fund to the Prime Minister's bank accounts. There are some doubts that the motion will indeed be voted on, but nevertheless, Razak is not secure in his position, having sacked four ministers, his Attorney-General and the Deputy PM, to stamp out dissent and now the 90-year-old former Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad has joined in the chorus of criticism of the current Prime Minister. To find out more, I'm speaking with Madari Morgan, a member of Sydney Bursai. Perhaps we could first identify who Bursai is, for those who haven't heard that word before. Bursai is basically an organisation that stands for free and fair elections and in more recent times it's become really a platform for the Malaysian voices to be heard to really hold the government accountable to certain things that have been happening over the years that really should not be happening anymore. Well when you're talking about accountability I don't suppose you can go very far past the financial scandal that's now encompassing Malaysia. Can you give the background to that? Who actually broke the story? Well, the original story was broken by the Sarawak Report some time ago, and they'd been following this paper trail, and uh, allegedly there were journalists, quite seasoned journalists in Malaysia that were working with them on certain things that didn't add up with a certain organization called 1MDB, uh, which is currently $11 billion in debt, as it's reported. Now, the mismanagement of funds and where this paper trail has ended up is really where these investigations are centered around. Obviously, there are many questions that have yet to be answered, and we're really hoping that these investigations will lead us to these answers. 
Has the government tried to, in any sense, shut down this investigation? In, I think it was around about July, the committee that was put together to investigate 1MDB was disbanded. Now, it was also around this, this time that the Prime Minister removed his Deputy Prime Minister from office and his Chief Prosecutor. And I suppose looking at the timelines, one sort of wonders whether there's a reason why these investigations aren't being allowed to carry on in the normal way. Can you explain a little bit further what the charge is, where the money's gone, how much money? Well, it's reported that 1MDB is $11 billion in debt. Some of this money has appeared in the Prime Minister's personal account based on reports that have been uh, circulated by the Wall Street Journal, etc. And that is to the tune of $2.6 billion. Money is yet accounted for. Why this trail is leading to the Prime Minister's personal account is yet another question that people are asking that we still don't have any answers to. And this comes against the backdrop of one of the worst economic crises I suppose we've had in uh, 20, 25 years. Well, who's asking the Prime Minister where that money's gone? Well, at this stage, the investigations have been opened up by the Swiss. The Singaporeans have uh, frozen the bank accounts. But within Malaysia, we're working in a, in a somewhat sort of a climate of fear of saying too much or asking too many questions. So there have been a spate of charges and arrests that have happened over the course of these years when people have asked too many questions around the 1MDB scandal. Are you saying that the money has gone into foreign banks? I can't conclusively say how this paper trail works. I, I work, I think it's a highly complicated network. But yes, some of these money has appeared in offshore accounts from what's been circulated. How would you describe the level of the crackdown against activists in Malaysia since the scandal broke? Some people have sort of equated it to the Oprasi Lalang, which happened uh, in the 80s, uh, late 70s, 80s, where numbers of scores of activists, academics, lecturers, journalists were all held without trial or detained without trial under what was then called the ISA or the Internal Security Act. Now, whether it's to the scale of that is hard to say, but um, a number of charges have been made against sort of key voices in Malaysia. And what are they being charged with? Well, they've been charged under what is the rebranded ISA, which is now known as the Special Offences Act or the SOSMA, as well as the Sedition Act. Now, these are really sort of very old draconian laws that were introduced at a time when, uh, you know, the British were still in Malaysia and, you know, Malaysians were calling for independence. Now, that act is still being upheld, but it now largely affects people who have really sort of said anything or raised questions with regards to the current sort of political climate in Malaysia. So the the charges are varied and really a a number of things can be considered as being seditious in Malaysia at the moment. Now you're saying they're being charged. Have they been to court? Not all uh, have gone to court as yet. So the charges have been made. But, uh, I mean, as everyone knows, Anwar obviously is in jail and... um, He's been there, obviously, for some time. But uh, considering the other charges, well, we'll have to see how the trial pans out and, and what those, um, whether those charges are upheld. And what sort of sentences could they be facing? Traditionally, what we would be looking at is probably detention without trial for any number of years, imprisonment. It can range depending on the charges that are levelled, the number of charges that are levelled. So that remains to be seen.
In recent weeks, the former Prime Minister has accused his protégé, who's the the current Prime Minister, of driving a a debt-ridden state into the ground and issues of bribery. I would have thought that would be a bit like the pot calling the kettle black. Well, you wouldn't be entirely wrong. I mean, a lot of these laws, a lot of these foundations were put in place during the Mahathir regime. So it is a little bit, I suppose, uh, of a surprise that he is now the largest and loudest voice of the opposition. Not to say that he's affiliated with the opposition party, but he is obviously one of the you know, loudest voices in terms of wanting the current prime minister to be held accountable. So it's an interesting time because Mahathir is leading quite a, a sort of significant crusade based on the fact that, it, you know, we are sort of operating in the worst economic condition. Racial and ethnic tensions have never been worse. You know, in many sense, you can see that the country is being depleted of its natural resources. And it's really politically and sociopolitically a really, really tough time in, in Malaysia at the moment. And I think Mahathir is probably, in some ways, the only person who can really lead this crusade. So what happens from here on now, what his agenda is, we don't entirely know. But um, I suppose if he is the only one who can bring about that sort of, or, or have his voice be heard, then you know the Malaysian people need to sort of draw on that as well for change to happen. Is he after the head of the prime minister or is it, less than that? Well, I think he is responding to what the public have been demanding and what the public have been asking for, which is a a transparent and accountable government. Now, to what extent that's actually realistic, we don't know. But at this stage, I think Mahathir, who is a large, who is one of the greatest champions of the UMNO, which is the ruling party in Malaysia and has been from the time we've had independence, a large part of it is that Mahathir feels that Najib's current role could be a real threat to the UMNO organization. And on the backdrop, as I mentioned, of the current sociopolitical and economic situation in Malaysia, if something significant or that significant change doesn't happen, you know, we're really at a political stalemate at the moment. Has there been an example like this before of of a leader being challenged in this way and maybe deposed? We've had some of a history of that and uh, to a large extent that voice has been Mahathir. We had, if you remember, the late 90s reformacy or reformation occurrence where people took to the streets and Anwar was really the sort of people's champion asking for the government to be accountable and, you know, we all know how that panned out. Subsequent to that, there was a lot of call for the Prime Minister that followed on from Mahathir Badawi to stand down, which he then did. I think in this particular instance, Najib is proving to be a stronger foe in some respects than what Mahathir may have anticipated. But even if he goes, there's still the money that's gone through his bank account or the alleged money. The alleged money. Well, yes, and, and, you know, the investigations hopefully will reveal a little bit more about that. I think at this stage, given the current climate, Malaysian people just need to know that there is a future that is going to be somewhat less bleak than the current present that we have. Now, it's sort of moved on beyond the issue of the money in his account. At this stage, we just, I think, need the sort of leader that we can actually depend on to take Malaysia into the future, because on a corporation level, on a government level, increasingly, and certainly on a public level, 
what we're starting to see is that Malaysia is really falling behind. And this is a real threat to the future of the country if something isn't addressed now. What is the, the situation with racism in Malaysia at the moment? And, and just socially, how, how are people getting on? And, and is it just the economic situation is just exacerbating the problems? Is that the, what you're saying? I grew up in Malaysia and, you know, we are a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, racial country. And on a grassroots level, I think the Malaysian people live, you know, very well together. They live in harmony. We always have. And, you know, for many of us, we are Malaysian first and then whatever ethnicity, we are second. However, the nature of the political structure in Malaysia is we've always had race-based politics in play. So we've had the Malay Party, the Chinese Party, and the Indian Party, and they formed the coalition known as the National Front, or the Barisan National. I think in more recent times, what we're starting to see or observe is that this mentality of divide and conquer seems to be the prevailing one in in the government. And race-based politics isn't necessarily in public opinion the way forward because we are an integrated society, we are an integrated community, and creating these sort of ethnic tensions is not the way forward for any country. It's not the way forward for a mature democracy. And it, it begs the question, are we even a democracy? And I think given the current sort of economic situation, which has really exacerbated the political and ethnic tensions in the country, you know, it's a country that is a little bit stunned, I I, I suspect, by the recent developments. You know, we're a very well-off country. We're rich in natural resources. We're we're effectively a very, we're a beautiful country and a very harmonious society. And driving these sort of tensions into the everyday life isn't helping the country move forward. So I'd say there's... You know, I mean, life goes on as per usual in Malaysia and business carries on as per usual. But, uh, you know, for us to really move this country forward on a structural level and on a foundation level, there needs to be a change. Looking to the parliament, there is a a no-confidence motion mentioned. Will that go ahead, do you believe? It's a very tricky situation. I think um, one of the things that probably initially affects that is the fact that we have a partisan speaker in Parliament who may not even let this motion be heard. Second challenge with that is the fact that even with the current opposition, which is slightly weakened in in the last sort of few months and uh, somewhat fractured at the moment, even if the opposition were to stand together and vote for the motion of no confidence, they still don't have enough seats in Parliament to get it over the line. So you would then be looking to the UMNO members or, or their affiliate parties to also vote you know, for this, this motion, which is, which is a very dicey situation because where I think the biggest question is is where UMNO is at at the moment and how UMNO is split over this. From what you've said, where does that leave the Bursine movement? Well, I think it is important. I think it is increasingly important at a time like this that we have these platforms to give voice to the Malaysian public and to have people speak up and say, what we want is no greater than your basic civil liberties. We want to be able to vote our government in. We want to be able to have a leader that's got Malaysia's interests at heart. And... I think as long as the people feel this way, and it is a movement that's growing, and it is a movement that's gaining strength, and I think it is a movement that needs to continue because, yes, change may not happen in the next election. Yes, change may not happen in the next 10 years. 
But I'm hopeful that change will happen. And I think as long as we're fighting for that change, then organizations like Birthday have to continue to grow and strengthen support, continue to provide that platform. Is your platform nevertheless limited by censorship? It is. I mean, there, there is a climate of censorship, censorship that has always been prevailing in Malaysia. But I think... What we want to do, the, the, the foundation of it is really to kind of push through those basic civil liberties. And as long as we're doing it in a way that gets our message across, then hopefully, you know, we're not, we're not shut down. And we have to consider those people who are facing possibly long jail terms. Yes. And again, you know, this is another... I suppose setback that the country doesn't need at a time like this. You know, I mean, on the surface, things may seem a little bit desperate at the moment and set against the backdrop of one of the worst sort of um, environmental crisis in the form of the haze that's happening in Malaysia. You know, it does seem that there's a sort of uh, sense of desperation in, in Malaysia. But I think... Beyond that, you know, that that is really galvanizing people into action. It, it's, you know, voices are coming out from courses that we haven't heard before. And I think that's so key because it, this doesn't need to be, as much as this is our present, this doesn't necessarily need to be our future. Could you just talk for a couple of minutes about the haze? This is a, a yearly occurrence that happens in Malaysia. It must have a long-term impact on people, people's health if this is happening every year. It does. It does, particularly young children or people with respiratory illness. Uh, I was back there recently and literally stepped out of the airport and you can just smell burning in the air. It's not, it's not good at all. But uh, again, we need the government to galvanize and, and take action with the Indonesian government to prevent this from happening. But, you know, I don't know where, to what extent that is happening or, or whether it will happen. So, you know, it, it's just another layer of complexity that the country really doesn't need right now. I've been speaking with Madari Morgan from Sydney, Versailles, and you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR, and this is coming up very, very soon. Left After Breakfast presents the legendary Left After Lunch, a very special getting-to-know-you day and fundraiser where you will rub shoulders with legendary luminaries and swap stories with other legendary listeners. Tickets are $25 and $30. So come on down for Left After Lunch on Sunday the 1st of November from 1pm to 4pm at Eco Centre St Kilda Botanic Gardens. Visit 3cr.org.au for more information. Left After Breakfast presents the legendary Left After Lunch. A very... There is a popular TV program with a title, I believe, Who Do You Think You Are? Well, we're going to turn that on its head today because Ruth Serrett knows exactly who she is and those who influenced her life. Ruth, how far back do we go to find out? I've got a long, a long interest in labour history and in particular the history of class struggles in England, going back to the Luddites, going back to Wesley, going back to the closure of the farms where people were forced off their crofts and into the cities and into the villages. My people originally came from a place called Sarat near St Albans in Hertfordshire, I think, in England. 
and they were pushed down to London for work and became what are now called Cockneys or EastEnders. They spoke the estuary English. If anyone goes to see a film called Legend about the Cray twins, you need subtitles because the Cockney rhyming slang was the language that they used. But they came from an agrarian past and had survived all kinds of things, forced into the factory systems and forced into becoming the urban poor and the underclass. So I'm conscious of influences in my life coming from the workhouse to my grandfather's struggles on the London docks to my father who actively struggled against ship owners for at least 47 years of his career for decent working conditions. Similarly, to a smaller extent on my mother's side, I got a bit of my work ethic from my mother as well. And not to go on too long, but my great-grandfather was a Fenian and a political prisoner and sent to Port Arthur for his misdemeanours and so forth. Well, let's start just briefly with your great-grandfather. Yeah. What, what do you know about him? What I know of him was that I think it was James Donald Curtin. He killed a landlord... Uh, with his Irish fighting stick that was in the family for a long time since disappeared. We were lucky because he uh, was transported four years before the famine. So in actual fact, we missed, you know, a possible death through the famine anyway. It's a wonder he wasn't executed. He was hung and he survived hanging, hence our famous hardheads. The sentence was commuted to... I think it was 12 years' transportation. My cousin, who's a lawyer, knows more about it than me. I often say she's followed in the criminal line of the family in becoming a lawyer. But anyway, all of the political prisoners in those days went to Tasmania which, or Van Diemen's Land, which was the, you know, the gulag of the day. And he was a model prisoner and uh, released after five years and sent for his sons and said, you know, it's a good life down here and I hope they weren't black liners, but there's a possibility that they were also involved in that. I haven't researched it and found out, but it's something also part of my heritage. I've read a lot about the um, genocide of the Tasmanian Aboriginals. Can you explain a little bit more about the black liners? The black line policy was, I, ca- I don't know the exact dates, but it was an operation of genocide against the Tasmanian Aboriginals. It was in effect hunting them down, killing them. The handful of survivors were concentrated onto concentration camps on King Island and uh, the other larger one, Flinders or, and King Island. Their fate there was that they died of terrible white diseases and pneumonia. They then suffered the fate of having their bodies stolen by body snatchers because of the eugenics ideas that were taking hold in Europe and their bodies were cut up and sold off to into an illicit trade in European universities, hence the remains that the Mansells have been trying to get out of all of these uh, depositories of these awful artefacts all over Europe. So they suffered the obscenity of not just near extinction, because there are still Tasmanian Aboriginal people, but they suffered the additional barbarity of becoming 
artefacts in educational institutions. I don't know whether my uncles or my grandfather were actively involved in that. I hope they, they weren't. I've read things since that even say that some of the Tasmanians bush range, the original meaning of bush ranging was someone who took to the life in the bush and even adopted the indigenous ways of living in the bush, even dressing in wallaby and kangaroo skin. So I hope my mob were doing that and not killing people. But there's a strong possibility that they may have been involved in that particular obscene thing that happened. Well, your great-grandfather was successful in getting his two boys out here, Mm. and one of those, obviously, was your grandfather. Yes, yeah. What's his story? Well, my grandfather, Jim Curtin, was... I guess a typical nation builder of the time. He worked as a drover in the Northern Territory. You know, there's a family story of one of his horses being gored by a water buffalo and all that kind of thing. He then signed up and was in the mounted rifle of Tasmanian Brigade or something that went to the Western Front and to Palestine. And he... Uh, I think would have been in actions in Palestine behind Allenby and uh, Lawrence. They were told at the end of that campaign to shoot their horses and he wasn't going to do that. He gave his horse to an Arab, to a Palestinian and his Jack Russell Terrier. So there was a famous picture of my grandfather sort of on his horse with his slouch hat and the little Jack Russell under his arm and his horse. I've always thought... I have solidarity to the Palestinian people. They fought behind us in that particular conflict and helped us and probably looked after my grandfather's horse till and died. So they are horse culture too, so they know how to look after horses. So, yes, I've got strong solidarity with them and feel very, very keenly what they're suffering at the present time. What did your grandfather do when he came back from the war? Well, he took up a soldier settlement, as they did, and in his case, the the Tasmanian real people were long gone, but he had a settlement on Mariah Island, and he and my grandmother raised sheep, and it's sort of a very romantic setting. But that's got a very bad history too, hasn't yes. it? Yes, yeah. so again, same things of concentration of people, massacre sites. They then took up another farm at a place called Uxbridge, named after one of the colonels in Waterloo. So they had a farm at the foot of the Styx Mountain, and it was called Styx, like the, there's a Styx River in Styx Mountain, because the, the, the scrub there is so thick it grows diagonally. And two miles past my grandparents' farm, you can't even get into the bush. But it had all that mythic stuff of Tasmanian devils and tigers around the place and all of that. So they farmed that with their nine children. My grandfather died in about 1964 and my grandmother then went to live with family in Hobart, yeah. Very hard life, particularly for a woman. Oh, my grandmother was an amazing woman. She was a a tailoress or seamstress and she made all the wedding dresses in the district and all the deb gowns and all that kind of thing and God help you if you came across her when a singer was not working <laughs> she'd have needles in her mouth and steam coming out of her ears but grandfather as well when I say he was a nation builder in the depression he went to Sydney 
and lived in Balmain in Sydney and worked on the Harbour Bridge. He was a, rib- a riveter on the bridge. I don't know if he was active in unions or anything. I hope he was. But the boys worked the farm while he was doing that. So, yes, he, he was just a, a typical bloke of the time who did that sort of thing to get through and survive and to flourish to a certain extent. How old was your grandmother when she died? can't tell you exactly. She died when I was about 13 or 14 and she was this very strong, resolute little woman who dressed as a lady of the times with her beautiful hat. She made her own raffia handbags. When she came to Melbourne, she would come over on the Seaway Princess, which my father worked on. She would stay a night at the John Batman Hotel to get her sea legs and she'd go into different places to get her supplies in Flinders Lane and her cane handles for her handbags. And she dressed in these beautiful tones, I guess, of blues, pinks and mauves with her beautiful old French crystal beads and her gloves and all that. I've got a very early picture of me as a baby lunging at her violet corsage, trying to eat it. But that was what she was like, smelled of violets and lavender and all those things. But very staunch, very disapproving. She was Anglican. My grandfather was Catholic and they had a policy of not baptising their children. So they weren't put through religious schools or anything like that. My mother became a Catholic in order to marry my father to please his mother who was 22,000 miles or more away or whatever it was. So all that kind of thing. So they, I think they were pretty individuals for the time. And all the nine children survived? One died. There's always a story in those families of one child who died. I had an aunt. She may have been Mary. Yeah, Mary after my great aunt. Yeah, she died of scarlet fever. I nearly died of that as a child. It was just the typical thing of child mortality of the time. But because they were on the farm and they had food... They were lucky. This is your maternal side now. So one of those nine children was your mother. Where did she come in the the line of the nine? I think mum was the third female child, fourth or fifth. Isn't it awful? You you don't ask these things growing up and years later you're asked about it. So she was a middle child and I guess she had to fight for her position in the family and for what she wanted. She had artistic leanings, but she was told by her family, no, you have to have a career where you have a home, you'll go nursing. So she became a mother craft nurse. What years are we talking about now? We're talking about probably the the 50s. My grandmother taught all of her daughters dressmaking skills, so they all had that. But she said, no, if you're not marrying at this stage, you'll have a career, your choices are teaching or nursing, and that was it. And she chose to become a mother craft nurse. But she she was very good with her artistic ability. She topped her class in her exam, and they even used her anatomical drawings in some of their teaching materials. But, yes, she was a frustrated artistic type, basically. Your father's side. Talk about them. Yeah, the Sirets. It's an old English name. A lot of people think it's French. Well, way, way back it's French. There was a Geoffrey de Siret who came over with Bill the Conqueror. But anyway, the Sirets were a very tough... We are the lesser Sirets. There are some who work for the City of London and were a bit higher. 
We were a East End family from Rotherhive, which is now a very fashionable part of London, you know, appropriated recently after the Olympics and are now all gentrified. They lived in very small dockside tenements that were usually two-room premises, the mother and father and the youngest children occupying one room, the other occupied by the older children. My father was the oldest boy. My grandfather was a very tough man. I say my granddad invented the community garden because when they didn't have work on the docks, he and his mates took council allotments and they grew cabbages and chooks, rabbits, and that's what they lived on because there were no dole or pension for them, only the very, very basic council sustenance. So when my grandfather was lucky and had work on the docks, and that was usually 12 hours of manually taking wheat out of the hulls of ships from Australia and Canada, he'd come home at the end of the day for his bath in the kitchen and grandmother would put all newspaper on the ground and he'd take his clothes off and all the wheat that came out of his clothing fed the chooks on the council allotment. <laughs> but they were resourceful. They came from real struggle. And in those days, Cockneys, the only holiday they had was in the summer months they walked from London to the hop fields in Kent, picked hops and uh, strawberries. And my dad had wonderful memories of those days and they, you know, they lived rough. They basically slept on bundles of um, twigs and things and they had wonderful times from those days. And similarly to poor Australians, a great sense of community. People looked out for other people. People looked after other people's kids. Even though I must say there were warring factions in the East End even in those days. There were our streets as they'd call them and then there were also streets that were predominantly Jewish. But in the same way, my dad had Jewish friends who he came out to Australia with at the end of the war. It was a real mix, and I'm conscious of the fact that my dad raised me on. Your grandfather fought the India Dock Company for for 40 years for a place for his men to wash their hands at the end of the shift. They got very, very little, and nothing in the way of help for people where their people were, were killed at work. But that even happened in my day as a child. Families that I knew lost their sons on on the wharves in Melbourne. So that was just a part of that life, I think, for people of maritime backgrounds and dockside people. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. Joan Bartlett and I'm joined by Ruth Syriot talking about the people and events which have influenced her life. You said he came to Australia after World War Two. Was he part of World War Two? Yeah, Dad went to Greenwich College, Naval College, to learn sonar. Uh, he described himself as a sparky. Dad was uh, stationed in Murmansk and Archangel in the war, and he said the Russians were the greatest people to fight alongside of because they did not waste a bullet. As opposed to the Americans, you'd get killed by friendly fire with them. The thing about that experience, Dad was stationed there and saw all kinds of people there, including German prisoners of war who were forced labour in those situations. And many, many years later, we used to take our holiday once a year at Bright 
and we'd stay at the municipal caravan park and then one year we went to Hoff's caravan park. And Dad said to me, I'll never forget a face, there's something about that Mr Hoff, there's something about him. Anyway, Dad went up to him one day and said, Merman score Archangel, and this man jumped. And he'd been a former German prisoner of war. He survived that. Dad never talked a lot about the war for obvious reasons. He was on small frigates that went between big battleships that pulled sailors from both sides out of burning oil and horrible things. I've read some of his war diary, but even with that, parts of it, there's huge blanks where he hasn't made entries of things that he's witnessed. Do you think it lived with him all those years later? Oh, definitely. Dad suffered from post-traumatic stress from that, as did some of my aunts who survived the East End being obliterated by the Luftwaffe. Yes, he did. He broke down and cried in front of me when he was about 80 or something. And I just said, Dad, you survived. Don't feel guilty about it. You know, you've gone on, you've lived, you've been happy. But they carried a lot of guilt for having seen their their school friends die. Sorry, getting a bit emotional myself here. I never rang Dad over the Anzac Day period because he'd be in a pretty black mood and I wouldn't call him until after because I just thought, no, let him get through that. And he didn't go to the RSL or any of those things. He was a member of the Navy Club, but he, he didn't go in for the parade and all of that A lot stuff. of men didn't, yeah. did they? Yeah, they just didn't commemorate it in that kind of way. How old was he when he came to Australia and and why did he come to Australia? He sustained an injury falling off a crow's nest in the Arctic Ocean, fell down, broke his leg, went back to Murmansk. His skipper hadn't signed off on his papers. They were going to put him on the Edinburgh, on the wards, the hospital ward, to set his leg. It was fortunate because, again, the the Syrett family luck... He had to stay where he, was, where he was till he got all his papers on. And then the Edinburgh was sunk by the uh, U-boats. So he was very lucky because he would have been strung up with his legs strung up and in Davy Jones's locker, as he said to me. So he came back to London, tried to get a settlement from the government for his injury, didn't get it until assisted by his union many years later after his retirement, finally got a payout from the British government then. Not a great deal, I might add. And he was restricted in the work he could do for the rest of his life, so hence he was a marine steward because he could hobble around and get to this part of this gangway and that part without much problem, but he always walked with a particular limp. But mind you, he was as fast as anyone in the store gift when we were at the race course and he had to get to a bookie to put a bet on or getting up to the local phone booth to put a bet on on some advice from Brian Martin or someone. But, yeah, he suffered from that. He was disgusted with England at the end of the war in that they weren't going to look after their return men. And he'd met Australians during the war and thought they were great blokes and characters and... He said, you know, I'm, this is it, I'm off. And I had a wonderful photo of him as a young man with his naval duffel bag and his little belongings and came out to Australia and came to Adelaide first, lived in Adelaide for a very, very long time. And as I said, he defected 
to Adelaide. When he retired, he went and lived in Adelaide, didn't um, retire here, but maintained a close affection to the place and lived very happily at Gawler for a, a long time after that. What was the influence of your mother on you? I recently heard a documentary on a woman called Diana Vreeland who had a, di- a difficult relationship with her mother. And she said, which I thought was wonderful, she said very few mothers and daughters are necessarily sympathetic. So we were not sympathetic in many ways, fought on a number of things. But she was a woman who was very, very independent. Uh, My parents separated when I was seven years old, about 1967 or 68, very uncool in Catholic circles in those days. We had a lot of difficulties, a lot of disapproval within our community, all of that. So my mother fought very, very hard for her independence. She didn't take a lot of money from my father. She was self-supporting. She certainly had her faults and many, many of them. But at times when I'm doing something and I've sworn I won't do it and I won't work that hard ever again and I am working hard on something, it's from her. I get that work ethic from her. She retired on practically no money when she, by the time her life was over, she had nothing but debts. My father, fortunately, had had the backing of a good union and a superannuation fund and a legal service through the union who helped him get that payout. He was also pretty well industrial deaf by his mid-60s and uh, he taped noise on ships and things like that for other people who hopefully get something in the way of compensation as well. So he had a lot of injury just from the result of the war than with doing the work that he did. But by comparison, because women didn't have superannuation funds, women didn't have a position with banks to be able to take out mortgages as, as easily, she was very much more compromised as a result. I get a lot of my fieriness from her, I think, too. So, you know, there's good and bad. And what have been the priorities in a political sense for you? Well, we live in the most appalling era of erosion of all the things my family and others have fought for. And this is an amazing concern to me, that we've been in this consumer amnesia while this is actively going on, the active destruction of all of the things that we've fought for. I don't have children, but it's a huge concern to me that young women in the workforce, a key thing for them is going to be equal pay, and they've got a solid, hard, difficult road ahead of them and no help and no solidarity. So that's the key thing they have to work on. When I worked as a marketing consultant and I used to set up my own teams on different jobs, I had a policy with all the work groups that I work with, no pink glass ceiling as well as glass ceiling. You do something to help an older woman in your team and you do something to help a younger woman in your team. And they were things that I hope I engendered some sense in them of working together on those things hopefully all going ahead in some way. But I see it now as uh, 
I think everything's going to be eroded, even the long-fought things for maternity leave and what have you. I don't want to be a pessimist, but there are active forces in the neoconservatives that they want to dismantle and destroy all the advances of the last two centuries. And these are things that have been hard-fought and paid for in blood. And when I said earlier about dockside families... There was a family in the street that I grew up in because we we went from South Melbourne toxide areas and the Victorian government thought that Broadmeadows was the place for us, not Dockside, not lovely old Baghdad down there in Port Melbourne, up in Broadmeadows. So when Dad came in at four in the morning, we'd have to wait to the first train to go in and get him and collect him. In that street, we had a, a lovely families and one family was a couple who had she had conceived later in life and they had this wonderful young son and he was killed on the docks by a container or something like that and I've never forgotten it. Those things don't change. I remember at the time of the waterside actions and being very affected by that and at the time working with a bunch of liberals, I won't use the other word I'll put it, I put after liberals, and one of the bosses sided with me and said, I'll oh, have the judges sided with the wharfies, and I said, yes. But I felt very strongly about it because I know how those families suffered and how hard they worked to build some of the safest working conditions, not just in this country but the world, on docks. Salt water's in my veins and all that's in my veins too. Were you down there those days? Yeah, I did go down to a couple of things and I know that the Hare Krishnas were wonderful. They were putting on beautiful food for them because they couldn't live on sausages and what have you. And I saw those Patrick's thugs and those criminals and I used to listen to 3CR in the days, as I told Susanna, when she referred to him as Wreath the Thief and those disgusting criminals of the Howard era. I hope there's something at least for future historians to expose about those people. But yes, I saw those disgusting people and their German shepherds and the rest of it. Well, it was designed to scare and intimidate, but we stood up to it. Were you there the morning the, the construction workers came through? No, I wasn't. I, 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 well, I had to work at the time. That's There's my mother's work ethic for you. But yeah, I was very torn and I just thought... If I'd have had a horse that day, I'd have rode it down there. I'd have made that kind of a statement if, I, if I'd have been able to. It's something I feel very, very strongly about. And world politics, not much good going on there. We're in an era of, of fascism again. What's really sad to me is that when I was a kid, on a Sunday night when the world at war was on, my dad would sit us down and he'd say, I'd like you to just watch this to have an understanding of what all of this was. He also wanted me to watch The Cruel Sea because that was the war he was in. The episode of the camps, he said to my mother and my sister and I, if you don't want to watch this, we won't watch this tonight. And I said, no, Dad, I'll sit and watch it with you. I've never forgotten the things of what happened in that war and in the camps. A talkback identity said to me, how can you compare that to the present neoconservatism, and I said, give them time. And I always used to think the world went through all of that, so we'd never go through form of it again, but we are. What I see happening in Palestine is just as bad, 
and the concentration camps in this country. I'm not just talking about the refugees, but I'm talking about the Indigenous First Nations are the very, very same. I went to a screening of John Pilger's Utopia at the MUA Hall and met Robbie Thorpe there and Viv. That was the turning point for me. I grew up thinking, at least we're not Nazis. We've never done anything that bad. When I watch The Battle for Britain, and there's a famous scene with Ralph Richardson with his beautiful crown derby teacup saying to the German ambassador, no, we will never, never give up, even if you came to Whitehall, never, never, all that. Well, I'm sorry, we're the Nazis. If you watch Pilger's work, the people who are killing those Aboriginal men, they're blonde, blue-eyed, uniformed, they're the same people. And as I said to an Indigenous politician recently, one of the hardest things for Australians to do, but must do, is acknowledge your own criminality and the criminality of your race. We've been brought up on the myth of the fair go, where or when the true Australians ever got a fair go. And one thing I did, hopefully did, calling 3CR, is said, let us name these things for what they are. The concentration camps on Manus and Nauru are concentration camps. Malcolm Turnbull has committed this country to millions and millions of dollars of legal expense that will come about in the future. Hopefully these people will get some compensation. But there will be, I hope, inquiries into the crimes that have been committed on these innocent people. And I feel badly that people don't see it for what it is. And it's the same part of our criminal culture, which comes from our unfortunate criminal sociopathic past. That's the hardest thing for Australians to actually confront. I've done it and I've decided, well, okay, I'll do whatever I can from now on to at least learn, listen, help where it's appropriate. Seeing that screening was the turning point for me because you can't live in the wonderland that we live in without really confronting what it is we've done and continue to do. At the present time, I'm assisting Sharon Firebrace and her Razor Sharp Review, and we also have a steering committee that we're doing work on for the Indigenous School out at Glenroy. The land was misappropriated, I think, under Napthine and was going to be sold to property developers. We're in the process of restoring the school and a cultural centre and doing that in close contact with the community. Sue Bolton of Socialist Alliance is also closely involved in that process and it's a wonderful thing for me because I've always recognised that that part of Melbourne was Indigenous. I also lived at Sunbury, which was a sacred country to the tribes from Bandura area, Confederacy of Tribes from there all the way over to Gisborne, and that was their summer country. And as a child, we adjusted horses at a place called Holly Green, which is now known as Emu Bottom, oldest homestead in Victoria, hotly contested over in the early days of settlement there. There was a site there which had the bone dust of all the successive tribal elders and it was bulldozed when the place was turned into a colonial site or whatever it was, dump ground we called it. And in those days, I was only five or six years old, old people would come out from Fitzroy and other places and ask to come come onto the country and see the country and visit there. 
elders' place. So to me, that land has always intrinsically been Indigenous land, very close to my heart to see the restoration of that country there. And many thanks to Ruth Syrett for telling us her story and the, the people who are featured in her life and where she is at this very moment. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing, and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. Next on Tuesday Home Time, a book review. The Intervention, edited by Rosie Scott and Anita Hess, and the reviewer is Coral Winter. The Intervention is an anthology edited by Rosie Scott and um, Anita Heiss. It's a fantastic book. It really brings to the forefront the whole problem with the intervention that the Howard government started in 2007. It's been going on now for eight years. It talks about the devastating effect on Aboriginal society and women in particular, and women and children and their well-being. And it's a very readable book. You know, it's easy. There's just small segments and poetry by many Aboriginal leaders and and, um, elders in society and to tell you what's happened to them with this intervention. There's a massive, um, I think, black hole in that no one talks about this. You know, it's not in the media anymore after um, Howard brought in that disgusting military intervention where they spent $587 million bringing in the army for six months to invade the, the communities. And um, what you realise at the end of reading these short stories and segments is that it was a land grab. It was a, it was a way of convincing the Australian public that all Aboriginal men were paedophiles and therefore we had to close down all the outlying communities where they were looking after their country and bring them into the big city so they wouldn't have to spend money on them, but mainly to get their land. They want access to all the minerals these Aboriginal communities are sitting on out in the outback. It's just a land grab and it was a way of convincing us and of slandering the Aboriginal community that they were all sex offenders and it's just been absolutely devastating for Aboriginal community. I'll just quote one sample where they said that, you know, that, that means that they, um, you can't buy food at certain places, only those stipulated by Centrelink. So people living on Elko Island, instead of going to Maparu, which was their closest shop on Elko Island, it's not listed as a one of the suppliers of food, even though um, Maparu won a, uh, an award for selling the healthiest food in the nation. They weren't listed. You have to go to Darwin, I think, which costs $560 return in airfare to buy maybe $150 worth of food. This is just the ridiculous, how ridiculous it is and how awful and devastating and how... It has impoverished the Aboriginal community in the name of a land grab for minerals and and to make it easier for the mining companies to get access to their land. Uh, It's a great book. Look, there's some great little stories in it. I I really like... um, There's some great writers, Melissa Lukashenko and also PM Newton, who's a fantastic um, little article 
who's our new uh, crime writer, Australian crime writer. She's great. But a whole lot of other, you know, Aboriginal writers. Nicole Watson, her brother Samuel Wagon Watson. There's poems as well by Lana Fogarty and a whole lot of other Aboriginal leaders speaking out on what this has meant for them and what, um, in, what it involves. It's, it's a really good um, book. You know, congratulations to Rosie Scott and Anita Heiss for bringing us out. We went to a, a launch at Redfern Community Centre uh, in July when they uh, launched the book and there was a great speech by Gillian Triggs yeah, who's a human rights thing we all started yelling out um, Gillian for PM but anyway it was um, a really moving launch of the book and and I'm so glad that they were able to bring it. They had so much trouble getting a publisher for it. Everybody said, oh, yes, all the authors that you've um, got together are really great, but it won't be a seller. And so, you know, they had to really go to a number of different publishers before anyone agreed to publish it because they said it wouldn't be a seller. But it's a great book. I really encourage people to get it published by... Oh, it's self-published, yeah. But I think it's in a lot of the a lot of the books. It was a problem getting a distributor. Oh, they're printed and bound in Australia by Griffin Press. Yeah. Well, I bought mine at Readings here in Melbourne, so. Oh, good. That's good. one of the major <laughs> distributors. Oh, good, great. Now, just before you go, did the defeat of the Howard government and the bringing in the Labor government did that make any difference, or did they just continue on what the coalition started? Oh, yeah, that's another disgusting fact of this. Um, that the Labor government under under Gillard just renamed the um, whole project as Empowering Communities and just carried on with the same crap. So, and what they're doing, they're trialling it so they can introduce it into depressed areas of the major cities where there's a high number of people on, on Centrelink payments and so they can use the same method to limit their payments on food and, and, um, and essentials. What they were doing with Aborigines has just been carried on under the Labor government and then, of course, with the, with the um, Abbott government, the same horrendous intervention. It, it's unbelievable that they can do this and get away. They even had to change the Racial Discriminatory Act to allow this to go ahead because it's, or, you know, it's discriminatory to Aborigines and... You know, it makes you disgusted with the Labor Party when you read all this. You know, they could do the same. And even though they're aware of the implications that it has and what it means to the Aboriginal communities, they don't care. But just the fact that this book has been published and that the contributions from the Aboriginal people just shows that they're fighting. Yes, yeah, yes, they're fighting. And we must help them in that struggle. The white community must recognise what has been done to the Aborigines and is still, you know, it's as bad as the stolen generations. This is this intervention and must support them and help them in any way we can to, to stop this. And that's Coral Winter. And the book is The Intervention, an anthology, edited by Rosie Scott and Anita Heiss. Indonesia's largest writers' festival, the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival in Bali, has been forced to cancel a series of events marking the 1965 massacre of alleged communists, an estimate 500,000 to 1 million people, after threats by authorities to revoke its operating permit, leading to the conclusion that Indonesian freedom of expression and critical thinking are under attack, that the totalitarian legacy from the new order regime is alive and kicking. 
I'm speaking with Dr. Vanessa Heerman, lecturer in Indonesian Studies at Sydney University. Her PhD thesis was on the 1965 to 1968 anti-communist repression in East Java and she was scheduled to facilitate a writers' panel at the festival. Vanessa, is this attack on the writers' festival in Bali just the latest example of the belief that the totalitarian legacy from the New Order regime remains? The issue of 1965 is not often clear-cut in terms of how the government will respond either at the national level or at the local level. So often as researchers working on 1965, we don't know what is allowed and what is not allowed by the government until such time as an event has taken place. I'll give you an example. We've been researching this issue now for a number of years and there have been a number of books, memoirs, interviews that have come out about people's experiences of 1965. Now, in general, these kinds of events and cultural products and books and so on are tolerated by the government and by and large they are not banned, they are in free circulation. So on one hand we can say that there is relative freedom to discuss this issue in Indonesia, but uh, at the same time there have been attacks against meetings and so on of victims groups, survivor groups. This year alone, in the beginning of this year, in Bukitinggi, in West Sumatra, and in Solo, in Central Java, two meetings were forcibly suppressed by civilian groups, one of which was the Defenders of Islam Front, and often the attitude of the security forces, i.e. the police, is really just to stand by and allow it to happen without giving sufficient protection to those who are being attacked. It's a very mixed picture when it comes to 1965 because of that level of tolerance which we've seen since the beginning of Reformasi in 1998 uh, and then we still have incidents of attacks and book bannings and things like that. So this particular event with the Ubud Writers Festival uh, has to be seen in the context of what else is going on in Indonesia on the 50th anniversary of the massacres. There have been many events taking place, meetings and so on, all over the world, in Australia, the Netherlands, the United States, United Kingdom, uh, about the events. The Frankfurt Book Fair has just concluded, and the one of the themes there that was taken up with regards to Indonesia was 1965. That's the context which uh, we see these attacks against the Ubud Writers Festival, as well as against a student magazine called Lentera, which means Lantern, which is published from the University of um, Satyawachana in central Java, in Salatiga. They were also uh, banned and withdrawn for, from circulation, that magazine, and the editor and the uh, magazine's team were um, pressured to issue apologies, statements, explanations and so on to um, say why they published a magazine that focused on how the massacres were uh, experienced in Salatiga, in that area itself. So the Orbit Writers Festival is not an isolated case, but I do think that the extra pressure on those of us looking at 1965 is because the government feels that it's a sensitive time because it's the 50th anniversary of the massacres. So there's heightened concern of what might happen in terms of reopening this past an international people's tribunal taking place in The Hague starting from the 10th of November and that might, might also create extra pressure on the government and on the military, the police and so on and that might explain why they're reacting in this way. And what was on the agenda of the Writers' Festival that so concerned certain people? Partly I think they, um, the police and other security authorities 
probably looked through the agenda and noticed that there, first of all, there was a film, The Look of Silence by Joshua Oppenheimer and co, that examined the 1965 killings through the eyes of uh, one of the survivors of that violence as well as um, the brother of one of the victims and immediately that uh, throws up all sorts of issues because the look of silence and the film before that the act of killing are two internationally acclaimed documentary films that have for a lot of people um, who didn't know about this past have suddenly pushed the issue of 1965 to the forefront and it's creating a lot of new knowledge around the world about 1965 so the fact that the look of silence firstly was on the agenda of of the Ubud Writers Festival as part of the film screenings, as part of the Writers Festival, I think was the first thing that created alarm because officially the look of silence is censored, is, is not allowed to be shown in Indonesia, even though there have been lots and lots of um, film showings taking place in universities and so on off the look of silence. So that was the first one. And then there are also three other panels, writers' panels, on 1965. My one that I was going to facilitate called Bali 1965, which featured the uh, work of grassroots activists in Bali dealing with 1965. And there was another one with famous authors such as Ayu Utami and Eka Kurniawan uh, looking at how to write about 1965, how 1965 has touched the works of fiction that they have gone on to create. And also a, a third panel about the experiences of editors in Indonesia primarily creating memoirs, oral histories about 1965 based largely on testimonies with uh, eyewitnesses and victims. So they're, they're the, the main events. But also there was a, a photo exhibition called The Act of Living about women uh, victims of violence who have gone on, uh, who've survived and gone on with living and to highlight their life stories. And that was jointly curated with the Asia Justice and Rights, an NGO based in Indonesia. As well as that, there were a series of book launches of books highlighting 1965. Will you still be going? I won't be going. I've decided not to go after a very sort of long consideration about what I would do. I have a few other engagements at the festival, namely I'm chairing a panel on Papua and I'm also chairing a couple of book launches and so on. But I've decided not to go because, for me, I'm concerned about my own personal safety as a 1965 researcher. That's what primarily I'm known for. Um, the organisers have been warned that there would be extra police and intelligence surveillance of the festival because of the political issues at the festival were raised and that immediately creates alarm bells for me in terms of you know how much freedom people will have to speak at the festival itself I think it would create a very uncomfortable and menacing atmosphere that I'm not really interested in being part of and also I've made a decision to not attend the writers festival and not participate in any of my other commitments because I do want to make a statement that um it's just a terrible state of affairs that particularly for my Indonesian fellow researchers, search partners and so on, that they have been silenced in the course of this. And, you know, I can't just go into the Ubud Writers Festival and participate as if it's just business as usual when I know a number of my colleagues have not been, been able to come and speak and participate and they've also not felt safe to do that. So for that reason, I won't be um, attending the Writers Festival at all. What do you and your friends in Indonesia feel about this in terms of the so-called democracy of Indonesia at the moment? 
Well, I know that my colleague at uh, Sanata Dharma University, Dr. Bhaskara Wardaya, is uh, very shocked and upset about the turn of events because he feels that after 17 years of Reformasi, um, he wouldn't have expected this to happen, this outright form of intimidation and censorship uh, against the festival and the intimidation against the festival organisers. And it's really sending a very clear message that 1965 can't be opened and discussed uh, freely, particularly in front of international audiences. So for us, you know, we are aware that 1965 does occupy this grey area where you do need to test things out to see where do the boundaries of freedom of expression lie in terms of 1965 and we do test this out constantly with the work that we do, the publications that we create and so on. But unfortunately, it's really disappointing that until now, attempts to discuss anything with 1965 in it can expect to be met with some level of, of intimidation as soon as it's known, particularly if it's gathering in Indonesia, but with international speakers and international component and so on. It seems that those are the kinds of, of events that are targeted by the authorities as well as the civilian groups that seem to work in tandem with the authorities on this. When you say the authorities, does it go right up to the top, to the president? Well, in terms of Jokowi, certainly human rights activists held a lot of hope that uh, his reign would usher quite a new period for Indonesia in terms of human rights accountability and so on. And I think that, you know, we really haven't seen that materialise. It's been a very mixed record for the government thus far in terms of human rights. We have heard rumours that uh, the highest levels of the intelligence authorities in Indonesia have had a hand in pressuring the festival organisers to cancel the 1965 events. Again, this is just rumour and hearsay. We don't have any evidence of that. But it has been, as I understand it, sustained pressure on the festival organisers to let go of the 1965 events uh, for the sake of saving the entire festival. So it hasn't just been events by the Herb Seed Foundation that have been cancelled. There have been cancellations now of any event that has mentioned 1965 or that has taken in the period of the 1960s at all in Indonesia. So the net is widening and the intense pressure that the festival organisers were subjected to leads me to think that this does go to the very top, but I don't know if... We could say that Jokowi has endorsed this. I would say probably not, because Jokowi is, what we've seen so far, is he's a relatively weak president. He doesn't enjoy great deal of support from the military or from the political elites. So I would say that, you know, he probably doesn't have a hand in it, but other people uh, around him or the intelligence authorities and so on do have a concern on this and have acted on this. Well, this must be upsetting us to say the least to the survivors and the, and the family members of those who were, were mm. killed. Yes because just uh, look at my panel Bali 1965 we've got two grandchildren two young men who lost their grandfathers in the massacres and so what we're doing is you know um, Indonesia has not taken responsibility for the mass violence and the killings that people suffered and what we're seeing now is that the following generations have continued to be silenced not only were their grandfathers taken away the the grandkids now have not been able to speak 
about their experiences and about the you know collection of prison songs that they created that they compiled based on the work that they've done with former political prisoners and so it's like doing a dishonor really not only to their grandfathers but now you know to the subsequent generations and Puto Okasukanta for example who is the the editor of one of the collections that we were going to speak about called Breaking the Silence which is published by Monash University Press now Puto served 10 years in prison without trial and he's come out of prison and you know he's become a, a really prolific writer and filmmaker and so on he's one of the most inspiring people I've ever met and he has also been silenced as a result of this too so for the survivors and their families it's um, not only having had to suffer all the losses that they have suffered as a result of political imprisonment but it's gone on until you know 50 years after the massacres themselves and the question that you ask is you know haven't these people already paid enough and to continue to have to be made to pay in this way is really very very unfair I think. Is there also a concern that silence mightn't be the end when we look at the arbitrary arrest and deportation of an older man who was in Sumatra visiting his father's grave? Yes, I mean, you know, to what extent can the silencing, you know, continue? Because as in the case of Tom Ilias, you know, he was exiled during the life of the New Order regime of over 30 years. He left as a young man to study overseas and the regime change happened in Indonesia while he was away and he wasn't able to go back and he was separated from his family for a very long time. Now... The problem with the, with Tom Ilias was that he wanted to go and visit his father's grave that just happened to be part of a mass grave, and of course this you know aroused the um, the concerns and fear of the local authorities of where would this end you know if they didn't silence Tom and stop him from um, going to his father's grave um, he may well have ended up disclosing or speaking about his family's experiences but you can't shut down the discussions forever because you know as Tom's case showed within a matter of days there was a you know solidarity campaign organized around the world and to point out the injustice of this not only has the man been denied the ability to visit his family for 30 years but also that suddenly he was deported and blacklisted and how unjust this was so I think that it's it's possible to to have silence for a period of time, but particularly in an age of social media, it's very difficult to censor things and and uh, ensure that things remain buried in silence because it's not possible. The books that we were going to discuss that are published by Monash University Press that we were going to discuss in Ubud, they're freely available for download. Uh, in electronic book format from the Monash University Press website. The government can try and censor discussions on this. Yes, we won't be able to speak at the Ubud Writers Festival, but the books themselves remain freely available. So there's only a limit to how much the authorities can actually censor and silence in this day and age. Finally, Vanessa, as a, an Indonesian yourself, how does it impact on you, not only as an historian and a researcher, but on a personal level? For me... Um, it's very difficult because, you know, I uh, obviously have a certain level of, you know, of personal ties with the country and so on. Um, I've had to wrestle very hard to work out, you know, what my position would be in on this occasion of the banning of, of our sessions and, you know, how it impacted on my friends and my colleagues and so on. And, of course, I have to 
deal with you know the personal side of things and to set that aside but you know for me it's um very sad and very painful to think that you know censorship is returning to the country of my birth and I'd fought for a very long time you know outside of Indonesia to make sure that we didn't have to deal with this kind of repression these censorships and so on but at the end of the day you know we realized that the reform period being as limited as what it was the reformasi uh, democratic transition to Suharto was so limited that it really left a lot of status quo forces still in place you know now Golkar the new order ruling party is now one of the top four place getters in the uh, 2014 elections so we realize that Indonesia has undergone a process of democratization but we also realize that so many things have remained untouched and you know what what else can you do other than to keep being active and campaigning on these issues and speaking out and writing about these issues whatever you can thanks Vanessa okay thank you Jan and that's Dr Vanessa Hemen whose lecturer is now in Indonesian studies at Sydney University. And just finish off with a little snippet from activists in England. Activists have taken it on themselves to show some of the BBC's most senior presenters the reality of the situation on the ground in Palestine. As a result of the broadcasting company's persistent, biased and misleading reporting on the situation in Palestine and Israel, the Palestine Solidarity Campaign has decided to surprise Broadcasting House with the delivery of mugs printed with maps showing how much land Palestine has lost to Israel since 1948. In case of confusion, the presenters will see, receive an accompanying letter reminding them who is the occupier and who is occupied. We hope having a Palestine solidarity campaign mug depicting everything the Palestinians have lost in the last 68 years sitting on their desks will remind the BBC's head of news and its senior presenters that it is the Palestinians who are the victims in this situation not the heavily armed Israeli state and we hope they enjoy drinking their morning tea from our mugs and that's the Palestine Solidarity campaign in the US. Perhaps there's a message there for some of the media here in Australia. Left After Breakfast presents the legendary Left After Lunch, a very special getting-to-know-you day and fundraiser where you will rub shoulders with legendary luminaries and swap stories with other legendary listeners. Tickets are $25 and $30. So come on down for Left After Lunch on Sunday the 1st of November from 1pm to 4pm at Eco Centre St Kilda Botanic Gardens. Visit 3cr.org.au for more information. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. 
Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. And that's all for me for today. Coming up in just a couple of moments will be Jonathan with Food Fight. And I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.